Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. Welcome, everybody. We're here, part three of our series called Life Hacks. Can't wait to dive in today. Um, If you've not been here, we really open this series with the idea that the ultimate life hack is wisdom. Um, Like, it's cool to know how to get two bowls in a microwave, and it's cool to know how to get your your iPhone to stand up the proper way. It's it's cool to know certain things. I think the first one was how to light a fire with... Yeah, Doritos. So anyway, there's all kinds of cool things out there that, that help you cheat at life and hack life so that you can start a fire or, 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 or nuke your cereal bowl or whatever. But the real life hack is wisdom. It's the ability or understanding of knowing when to apply the right knowledge to the right situation. And we all admire wise people, don't we? Every once in a while, we, we catch a glimpse of wisdom. We see somebody handle a situation so gracefully we see somebody navigate a storm so wonderfully they're like man the wisdom or we we sit down and we talk with someone and we we maybe bring them our problems and they share insight into like how to handle the problem and we're like dang he just dropped knowledge on me what what wisdom and so the bible says there, there's this guy named solomon everybody say solomon that solomon has a conversation with god god gives him in essence hey you pray, and I'm going to answer whatever prayer you want. And Solomon's prayer was, God, I'd like you to give me wisdom so that I might lead your people. And so the Bible says that God gives him wisdom to a degree that he's basically the wisest man that ever lived. Like kings and queens would come and sit at his feet and just pick his brain and ask him questions. And so what he did was, is eventually he took all of these little juicy nuggets of wisdom and they put them in a book called Proverbs. Everybody say Proverbs. So if you have your Bible and you go dead to the middle, you're probably going to hit Psalms. But if you turn right, just one book, you're going to run into Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is broken into three parts. The first part is him writing to his son. And it's about him basically just like begging him to dive into wisdom, to seek wisdom, to, to surrender to wisdom. The second part is really him writing to everybody. It's just tons of like individual nuggets of wisdom. So when you get into like, you know, chapter 12 or something, and you read it, it's not like one thing. It's like 30 little things. And so when you read the book of Proverbs, don't try to like digest the whole thing. If you read a chapter of Proverbs, try to take one thing that's for you right now, given your life circumstance and situation. So, and by the end of it, he actually, there's a section in there where it talks about wisdom for leaders and wisdom for kings. It's really, really interesting. And so that is the book of Proverbs. But in the book of Proverbs, he actually lists four different kinds of people, and you and I, I think, have to fall into one of those four categories. So you want to know which one you are? Dive in, follow with me today. So he gives four different kinds of people. The first one is this. Everybody say the simple. The simple. The first thing he does, we would use the word maybe naive. He would say, hey, look, there are some people out there that are a little bit naive, they're a little bit simple, and really he, he directs this towards young people. So if you're young, and I don't know what young means, because the older I get, that age keeps going higher. Can I get an amen out there? Yeah, yeah. Because like when you're 20, you're like, God, thank goodness I'm an adult now and I'm so smart and wise. But see, what's going to happen is, is when you turn 25, you're going to be like, wow, I was 20 and I was an idiot, right? Isn't that what you did? And then, and, and I think when you get older, maybe it starts going in decades, maybe. I, I don't know. It levels off a little bit, I think. But, but Solomon basically says, if you're young, you're simple. And it wasn't an insult. It was something that you needed to be aware of. And so uh, you, whatever young is, we'll go sub 30. We'll go sub 30 for today. If you're under the, you're, you're, what Solomon would say is, is, I love you and God bless you, but you're going to be a little bit on the simple side. And it's not an insult. It's a reflection of your life experiences. 
you only have so many life experiences to draw perspective from. As a matter of fact, he tells a story. If you want to go read a funny story, go read Proverbs chapter 7. There's a little parable and he tells a story about a young man. Oh, my dang, it's funny. I might have to preach this later in the series. It's a funny story. But he, he describes him like this. He goes, I saw among the simple, I noticed among the, everybody say young men, young men, young men, a youth who had, yeah, you got no sense. Now, I didn't say that. That's what Solomon said. And Solomon was pointing to the idea that if you are young, what you want to do is be careful not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. What you want to do is be careful to submit to wisdom and wise counsel. Now, this is funny, because if Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, who was the person that needed counsel the least? Solomon. If you're the wisest man that ever lived, you don't need a lot of people advising you, right? And yet Solomon was the person who spoke of wise counsel the most of anybody. So the person who needed the least was the one that recognized that he actually needed it the most. And if you're young out there, lean on wise counsel. Find people that are smarter than you, further along in life, successful at what you are wanting to achieve and do and see and experience in life, and listen to them. Because what the simple really need is this. You need more life experience. But in the meantime, lean on wise counsel. Now, the second person that Solomon mentions in this incredible book of wisdom is the fool. Everybody say the fool. The fool, well, it is a fool. The Bible says this, a fool finds pleasure in wicked schemes, but a person of understanding delights in wisdom. Basically, a foolish person was a person who, and, and I don't know if you've ever known anybody like this, or if you can say, yeah, I used to be like that. Uh, a foolish person is the type of person that if you brought to them warning, if you brought to them some type of um, wisdom or advice, they would be like, no, that's stupid, I'm not doing that. Or they would hear it and just keep doing it anyway, right? It, it, the foolish person is a person that sees danger and says, I don't care, I'm gonna, you know, I'll just deal with it when it happens. Or I'm going to disregard other people's advice or wisdom. Or I'm going to disregard what the Bible says is wisdom. It's a person that just disregards this stuff. And the Bible says, hey, you're going to end up being foolish in life. Now, the problem with being a fool is this, is eventually the Bible talks about how the fool is eventually mocked because of the bad mistakes and decisions that they made, the, the consequences they reap into their life. And so you don't want to be a fool, right? Like nobody ever, ever like, that's my dream. I want to be a fool one day. No, you don't want to be a fool. Now, here's what a fool needs, though. A fool typically needs tragedy, right? You ever, you ever felt like you were the person that only learned the hard way? Yeah, that was because you were living foolishly. You had to have some type of pain to trigger change in your life. Now, a wise person is a little bit different. They're willing to submit to maybe what the Bible says or what the wisdom of Scripture says or the wise counsel around them. And so wisdom is not just learning from your mistakes. Wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes. The fool... Well, they wait until disaster happens before they change, and so that's typically what a fool needs. They need some type of tragedy. Now, the third person was this. The, it's the mocker. Now, this is, what a, this is what a mocker is. A mocker, this is the worst. Never be this, okay? A mocker was a fool who made fun of other people's wisdom. It wasn't just that you were foolish. It was that you were so foolish, but you added injury to insult by saying, I'm going to make fun of what is actually wisdom. I'm going to make fun of. It was a mock. To mock something means to make fun. So it says this is whoever, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Well, it's interesting because Solomon gives a lot of these contrasts. To rebuke a, a mocker is just, well, you're going to get mocking from them. You rebuke a wise person. They'll love you for it. 
And that's the contrast. And so anyway, the, 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 so you see this. You see the simple, right? They're just, they're just young and lack perspective. Then you see a fool, somebody who disregards wisdom. But then you see the mocker. Not only do they disregard it, but they make fun of it. But Solomon says that there's a fourth person, and this is the person that we all ought to aim to be, and it's this. It's the wise. Okay? We all, this is, and this is what life hack actually is. The ultimate life hack is applying God's wisdom to your life so that you can experience God's best for your life. And that's what the life hack ultimately is. And this is what it says. This is the most maybe repeated idea, I believe, on wisdom. And it actually says something interesting. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me say that last line again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So are we tracking so far today? Might feel a little, little teachy, a little classroomish, but roll with me here. Because what I'm going to help you connect to right now is the most important aspect of wisdom because it's the starting point. And if you don't start with this, the odds of you catching on to it later or picking up things, you're going to be really, really hit and miss if you miss this idea. It is the idea of the fear of the Lord. Let's pray before we go any further today. So God, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds. God, will we hear your voice today? Would we walk out of here different than the way we walk in, God, maybe encouraged, maybe challenged, but God, different because of who you are. God, would we draw closer to you because of these words, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this idea of the fear of the Lord is it, crucial. Actually, the way Solomon does it, he says, this in the book of Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, there's another book in the wisdom literature called Ecclesiastes, and apparently you're not supposed to read this until you're at least over the age of 45. So I've never read it, but this is, I, I checked it. So I'm kidding, I, I've read it. But at the, the very end of Ecclesiastes is, okay, so Ecclesiastes is the end of his life. Solomon, Solomon actually disregards some of his own wisdom, makes a lot of very, very bad decisions, may, brings wreckage and carnage and tragedy into his own life. But at the end of his life, he writes Ecclesiastes and reflects back on the wisdom and the foolishness of his life. But by the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you know what the very, you can, as a matter of fact, you don't have to read the whole book, just go to the very last chapter and the last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you know what it says? He goes, well, here's the summary, really, of the whole book. And this is all you need to know in life. Fear God and keep his commands. The rest is commentary. And he goes, that's how life, so he begins with, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and he basically says when you sum up all of life, this is the, in a nutshell, fear God and keep his commands. Everything else is just is commentary. And so anyway, this idea of the fear of the Lord, now I need to like make sure that you understand what I mean when I say the fear of the Lord, not really what I mean, but what they meant. Now, a, a Hebrew person speaking the Jewish language, Hebrew language, they had words that were like overstuffed suitcases, so when they had a word, they would pack tons of meaning into it, whereas we might have a bunch of different words and use them for all kinds of different meanings. So when they say the word fear, yeah, it could mean like afraid. But you always had to look at the context of it, and in the context of the way the fear of the Lord is used, it's this idea of reverence. And so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's the fear of the Lord, or fear of God, is not cowering dread. It is awe-inspiring reverence. It means that when you look at God, you don't take him lightly. It means that when you look at Jesus, you don't necessarily think of Jesus as your homeboy. It means that when you look at God, there is a certain amount of reverence and therefore it, it inspires amount of respect from you towards him. And if that's not there, then you end up with this really, really loose 
casual, yeah, the big guy upstairs. Yeah, the big guy in the sky. No, it's a little bit more than that. There ought to be a little bit more respect that comes from that. As a matter of fact, I told you this story that in my grandmother's house, um, she had, it was almost like the temple. You know, it was like layers of, of holiness throughout my grandmother's. Because when you came on the porch, you could bring your muddy boots on the porch and she didn't care. You could go into the kitchen and the kitchen was pretty casual. I mean, you could kind of be loose in the kitchen and she didn't really care. Then there was the TV room. That was where, bless God, you better have them shoes off by then. And don't mess nothing up, you know, clean up, pick up after yourself. But then beyond that, and literally this is the way the house was. It really went porch, kitchen, TV room, and then there were the Holy of Holies. Grandma had that room. Did anybody have a grandma with that room? Special, holy, breakable things, coverings on the furniture. You didn't, and it was fancy stuff. The china was in that room. And bless God, she didn't care. She loved having her grandkids over and we would run around and make a mess and have fun. And it was great. But bless God, you did not run through the Holy of Holies. Because Grandma would hit you with a broom. That's how Grandma rolled. And she loved you. But she'd hit you with a broom if necessary. And that's just the way it was. And I remember feeling like this is what the fear of the Lord is. It's saying that there's an aspect of God that's so personal and relational. But there's a component of God that requires incredible respect and even caution or just a reverence or a, I don't run through that room. Nope, I don't touch that. No, no, I don't throw the football in this room. It's, it's, there's, something, there's something unique about it. And so as I reflected on the fear of the Lord, I thought, how is it that you get this fear of God? And there's three things that I think kind of give you the fear of God. Are you, are you ready for this? Number one is this. There's a revelation that needs to hit your life that God is awesome. Everybody say awesome. There's something about like God that's just, Awesome. Now, I don't know about you, but we overuse that word in English language, don't we? Like, oh, I was at this pizza place, and it was awesome. You know, I went and saw this concert, and it was awesome. And I was, you know, it's like, oh, this movie, oh, it was awesome. It's like, okay, awesome. Everything can't be awesome, right? If everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome. Isn't that right? Because at some point, it's a watch. God is awesome like nothing else you've ever been able to imagine awesome i don't even know i can't fully describe his awesomeness but i mean i'll give you like like a like i'll give you my best glimpse or whatever when you think about the earth sets inside of a solar system that sets inside of a a galaxy called the the milky way yeah yeah we named it like a like a little snicker bar thing after it's the milky way And, and and then the milky way is one of a countless number of galaxies, and the closest galaxy next to the Milky Way is the Andromeda galaxy, and it's about 2.3 million light years away. And light travels roughly at about 186,000 miles per second, and so there's the Milky Way, but then there's the Andromeda, it's 2.3, and then, so what they say is, is that these galaxies are kind of clustered together in groupings, but like, the, the, like there's a grouping here, and then you go out further, and there's another grouping, and then inside of each galaxy is like millions and millions of stars, and they can't even count it all, but what they've, what they've measured to date is that the farthest galaxy they can measure, now remember, Andromeda is 2.3 million light years away, the furthest thing they've been able to measure and they have a name for it, but it's, all, it's like letters and numbers. It's not like a cool name like Andromeda or Milky Way. It's, it's code now at this point because there's too many, I guess. It's 
over 3 billion light years away. And again, light moving at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. And the Bible says that God holds the entire thing in the span of his hand. Okay, that's different. So you thought God was, but I'm telling you God is. And then, and then this is the other crazy part. So as far reaching as the universe goes out, apparently the universe goes in. Because when you, when you draw back from 13.3 billion light years from this point to the farthest point, which doesn't even matter from this point, to, I mean like, and it's all in the span of his hand, that you dig down deep enough through all those millions of stars and millions of galaxies into the, we'll go to the Milky Way and then we'll find that third planet from the center star called the sun. And if we find out of six billion people, just one person, and then when we take that one person, we realize that all living matter is made up of cells. And then you realize that you have about 100 trillion cells that make up your body. And then you realize that inside of a cell, well, that, there's something called molecules. And so you go down to the next level. And inside of molecules, you have something called atoms. And then inside of atoms, apparently it's mostly just a bunch of space. But inside of that, you have a cluster of, of protons and electrons and neutrons all spinning around each other. And the Bible says that he holds all creation by the word of his power. So he's holding it in the span of his hand, but at the, at the, the neutron level, he's just thinking of it and holding it together. Because see, here's the thing you need to know about God. God is not smart. He's all-knowing. And there's a difference. God is not strong. He's all-powerful. So he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. God is not just locational. God is ever-present. Which is a weird idea to get around, to think about how, like, not only is he ever-present at this exact moment, but he's actually ever-present in every second that's ever clicked on a clock. Ever-present. God is awesome. And I don't even know how awesome it is. I'm just trying to like get my head wrapped around it. But when you realize that God is awesome, he's not, ah, oh, the big guy in the sky. No, no, no. He's awesome. As a matter of fact, I'll read the scripture, Psalms 47, verse 2. For the Lord most high is what? He's awesome. And the great king over all the earth. And his awesomeness is actually what leads me to a life of worship and devotion. Now, here's the second revelation that you need. The second revelation that you need is this, is that not only is God awesome, meaning he's bigger than big, faster than fast, you know, he is holy and he is righteous. I mean, it's not just enough that he's really big to an unfathomable amount that he's actually not even size, he takes up all space. But, but anyway, he is holy, he is, he is righteous, there is a purity to him, there is a, a perfection to him. And what that implies is huge. It has all kinds of different ramifications because if God is holy and I'm not, there's problems. When God is pure and I'm impure, when God is righteous and I'm unrighteous, that there's a problem there. This is why the Bible says that we will all stand before God one day and give an account for what we have done and said and thought. Because why? Because He is holy. This is why Jesus is so important. It's because it, it, he begins to fill in the gap for the holiness and the righteousness that we have. He, here's, here's what else this means. If, if God is holy and I fear him or revere him and respect him, 
then I need to get on board with his holiness. As a matter of fact, this is what it says. It says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. That's a strong word. He said he hated evil. Which means this, for you to connect to that God, you need to be moving in the direction of His holiness. It means that sin is not a small thing, that evil is not a light thing. That our, listen, let me, let me help you. Sometimes we, we, we could discount God and make Him the big guy in the sky, and we don't want to do that because He's too awesome. But the, in the other way, we don't want to sit here and say, oh, I kind of made a mistake today. You're not a mistaker, you're a sinner. And it puts you into an unholy place. And the only thing that makes up the gap is Jesus. Which moves me into the next one, which is this. The third revelation that you need is that God is love. Now you're like, wait a minute, because he's love. I don't have to fear love. What that love ought to do is inspire you. See, what if I told you that God gave the greatest gift that was possible to give? Does that make sense? There was no greater gift than what God gave in his son Jesus. As a matter of fact, you, you, ever, you ever have a hard time getting gifts for people? Do you have that person in your life where you can't get them a gift because they just, my mom is like this now. My mom, you can't get her a gift because she has everything, right? Because once you get to a certain age in life, you apparently just got whatever you need or you don't care anymore. Or, you know, I don't need anything or, you know, whatever you do, if you need something, I guess she just goes buy it. And so she's really hard, really hard to buy for. And so I feel lame trying to buy my mom's stuff. But because that's because like, it seems like no gift is really anything. I, I want you to know, like, when we worship, I want you to give your best gift. When you give, I want you to be faithful with your gifts. But, like, there is no gift that you can give that will ever compare with the Father giving his son Jesus. You can't compare with that. You can't outdo that. You can't one-up him. There is, and what this ought to do is inspire something in you. As a matter of fact, has anybody ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Old school, World War II movie. Tom Hanks. He goes and finds Matt Damon. You know, before Matt Damon was Matt Damon. You know, he was young Matt Damon. And he goes and finds him because apparently his three or four other brothers had already died in the war and they were like get this kid out of there or that mom's going to have a heart attack send one of her kids home please and so they send this troop of guys to go find matt damon i don't know his name in the movie great movie but they go find matt damon and what was that his name saving private ryan that makes so much more sense now so private ryan I feel like y'all took a lot of pleasure in that. M more than what was like necessary. It, was a, it should have been like a ha ha ha. And it was like. <sighs> Let me make my point, people. Okay, so let's go back. Um, so Private Ryan is this, this, this guy. And, the, and when the, the troop of men find him, they realize that the Germans are coming and there's a bridge and there's a thing. And so in the end, all these guys die trying to save Private Ryan, apparently, was his name. They were trying to save Private Ryan. And at the end of it, there's this scene where Tom Hanks is about to die. And as he's dying, he looks Matt Damon's in the eye and he said, Hey, go earn this. Because if somebody died for you, you would appreciate that. If somebody died for you, you would live the rest of your life trying to honor 
their memory. If somebody died for you, you would reflect on that. It would be a part of your life. It would be coded into your DNA. You would consider the sacrifice that was made for you. And what I want you to know is this, is that God's love and the gift that he gave through his son Jesus, dying on a cross for your sins, is the greatest gift. And it was the ultimate sacrifice. The Bible says, greater love has no man than this, than a man might lay down his life for his friend. I'm telling you that Jesus laid down his life for you. And that incredible love, ought to elicit, ought to inspire. Something ought to rise within you that says, I will not take that for granted. I will not take his sacrifice lightly. I will not treat that sacrifice casually. I will live my life in honor of that sacrifice. Now, here's what's crazy. Is that the love of God should inspire our reverence and awe towards him? But now here's the crazy thing, because God is so good. Not only does the love of God inspire our reverence towards him, but because of our reverence towards him, God ends up dishing more love onto us. Because as Solomon continues, although he defines the fear of God as reverence and awe, and as he defines it as hating evil and fleeing from sin, as he defines it all that, he goes on and he spends the rest of the book, and his father David said some of the similar things. They go on saying, Hey, if you fear God, I just want you to know God wants to heap even more blessing on you. Now, the love of God is already inspiring me. He said, if you'll respond to that, I'll heap more on. Listen to what the Bible says about the fear of God. The Bible says this in the the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs. I'm just buying time here for the slide to pop up on the screen because I'm trying to get the fear of the Lord scriptures to come up. No, not that one. Next one. Although that's true. The prudence, see danger, and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Next slide. We talk about the fear of God. So I want to talk about the blessings of the fear of God. Okay, so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what the blessings of the fear of God, because when you go throughout the rest of the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, what you find is, is this right here. It says this. It says that the blessing of the fear of God is this, that if you fear God, you get to see and experience God's goodness listen to this how abundant are the good things you have stored up for those who fear you it brings god's protection watch this you who fear him trust in the lord and he is their help and their shield watch this it gives you peace of mind the the book of proverbs says the fear of the lord leads to life and then one rest content untouched from trouble Watch this. It even says that the fear of God pays with wealth and honor. It says this. It says, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. I just want you to know that if you will respect, revere, be in awe of, that's what awesome is, to be in awe of your heavenly father to recognize the grand gesture of his love towards you. If you'll live that way in a pursuit of holiness, in a pursuit towards righteousness and purity with your life, that all these things begin to be unleashed onto your life. And and here's the deal. Again, I don't want you to think the fear of God is, God's going to get me if I do something wrong. As a matter of fact, if you could, let's just, let's just use our imaginations real quick. What I'd rather you do is imagine, um, imagine when you were a teenager, when you were learning how to drive, and imagine going down the road for the first time, maybe on your own, when your parents weren't with you, and you're finally free. Can I get an amen and a what, what? You're like, yes, freedom. 
And then all of a sudden you look in your rearview mirror and it's a cop behind you. And all of a sudden you clench up a little bit and you're 10 and 2. You know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden you're like, okay, you stay in between the lines. What's the speed limit? Check your blinders. Is your blinker running for no purpose? You know, you're, you're caught. You don't run the yellow light. The speed bump is not a launching ramp. You are careful. You are thoughtful. You are intentional. And then you look back in your rearview mirror and you realize that wasn't a cop. That was your dad. And he was really, really close. And although he was watching, he was there for you. If you broke down, he's got your back. If something happened, he's right there. Behind. And I want, you, I want you to recognize, that's what the fear of God is like. It's being so cautious and thoughtful, intentional with the things that ought to be righteous and holy and pure. And realizing that your heavenly Father is there. If you're taking notes, you can... You can write this down. The fear of the Lord is the constant awareness that God is present, that he is holy, that sin and evil want to destroy me, but God's love, or but God loves me and desires me to humble myself before him and walk with him obediently. This is what the fear of the Lord is. Last little thought and illustration, and I'll, I'll close it with prayer. Um, this will be my second movie reference, not on purpose. Um, has anybody ever seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis? It's a really cool... I, I grew up with the, like, the, young, the young cartoonish type version, and then now they came out with the cooler version, and it's been out for years, and my kids are reading the books. And, and there's this idea in The Chronicles of Narnia where these kids go through the wardrobe, and they go through the, the fur coats, and then they, all of a sudden they're in, in, they're in Narnia. And then what they discover is this incredible thing. It's just a big allegory. Because inside of it, ultimately, there's this lion who gives his life and pays the ultimate price for others' salvation. It's this really, really beautiful story. But early on, when the kids get into Narnia and they're going to go see Aslan, who is represented by this lion, they have a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Do you remember this? And they're talking, they're like, well, wait a minute. And this, this, is, this is what they say. They're talking about going to see Aslan, this great king lion, for the very first time. And Mrs. Beaver was, was trying to prepare them. And she says, And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. So Lucy replies, Then isn't he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So I want you to know that your heavenly father, he's your father, but he is the king. And this is not some Old Testament idea to try to like scare people. It's, it's not what that is. This is a New Testament idea. The Bible talks about, let us consider the goodness and the severity of God. And the writer of Hebrews talks about how like we ought to come to God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. This is not some Old Testament idea to scare children. This is the idea that says, you know what? You know what the beginning of all wisdom is? It's when I fear God. Because my fear of God or my reverence and respect and my awe towards God, it causes me to worship. It, it basically anchor, anchors the convictions of my heart. But it, it reminds me of God's love. 
and in all of this, I stand in awe of God, but then I pursue holiness and righteousness and walk in God's loving presence. It is the life hack that begins all life hacks. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray, God, would you please, God, open up our eyes to see you. God, open up our hearts to know you. God, help us to see you in such a way that, God, we would be in awe, that we would have so much reverence. We wouldn't take you lightly. We wouldn't diminish you. In light of that, we wouldn't diminish sin, and we'd never diminish the great sacrifice you made for us on the cross. God, would you help us to walk humbly with you, to obey, to follow closely, to always hold you in the highest of honor and esteem. Help us, Lord, we pray in your son's name. And we all said, amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap this morning? Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.